spending time with her husband, friends, family, including her 12 grandchildren. In her spare time, she connects and celebrates with the women involved in motorsports, taking you behind the wall about their journey of life, racing, and how they juggle everything to make it all work. Welcome to Racing Girls Rock Podcast. Strap in, window nets up, the pedals are down, and when the green flag drops, we go. Hello, everyone. This is Melinda Russell with Racing Girls Rock Podcast. And my guest today is Heather. Heather and I met on social media, which is how I've met, as you know, almost everyone that I have on my podcast. And I'm excited to have her with us today. So Heather, I want you to just start by telling us a little bit about yourself so that our listeners know more about you and who you are. Hey, um, I'm Heather. I'm really happy to meet everybody. Um, Anna, come find me on social media and stuff because I'm um, really excited about m what Melinda's doing about the International Women's Motorsports Association. Um, so a little bit about myself is um, I have, I, I feel like 20 different jobs. Um, I have uh, um, one of the, I, I have sort of two main things in my life. I have, I have my life's work, which is my teaching. Um, I have a program, um, I have outdoor education resources on a site called teachoutside.org. Then I have my own outdoor school called Outside School. Um, and I do that, I live um, in the East, we call it the East Bay, but specifically it's the um, East San Francisco Bay. So I'm five miles north of Berkeley. Um, and we're um, just uh, east of Richmond, California. Um, really, really busy area. Um, and um, yeah, lots of traffic. <laughs> also incredibly beautiful. Um, nice blue skies. Um, I picked this time of day because it's, it's uh, typically fogless. Um, during the summer months, we were pretty foggy in the, in the mornings and afternoons. Um, but one o'clock, uh, PM Pacific daylight time, pretty, pretty solid for, for blue skies. Um, so I have my, my teaching is, is my life's work. Um, I, my husband and I also have a small business, um, and we, um, it's like a Halloween and horror merchandising business, but we, I'm also, um, we also make movies. Um, so we make San Francisco documentaries and some horror based documentaries. Um, so in my extra spare time, I'm also a, a movie producer. Um, and then my passion in my life is, is motorsports. Um, and I'm really, really extra bonus grateful to actually work in motorsports now um and uh i have a few because i have 20 different jobs i have a few different things i do um i uh, started off as a volunteer with scca um, and then moved on to um working for sonoma raceway um, sometimes i course marshal um it's not quite as fun for me as the other things but i also head up um tech inspection for um drifting and um, I am an EMT firefighter at the track too, um, which is an absolute thrill. Um, I, I was a volunteer pit lane firefighter for a while, then got hired on at Sonoma. Um, and uh, after I was doing that a couple of years, they said, well, we need you on a truck, so you need to become an EMT. So when I was uh, 48 years old, I became an EMT um, so I could ride on the safety trucks, which is really awesome. 
Um, and then um, the main, the bulk of my time these days is spent uh, managing Team Farouk. So I manage um, Pro One Formula Drift driver Farouk Kawai. And um, it's been an incredible experience. I feel like um, I've, I've had all these various life experiences and um, I've, it, it basically, I feel like I'm taking all those life experiences and condensing them into this little ball and then just throwing it out and, <laughs> and, and, and doing, uh, you know, just massively, massively using all of the different life skills I've ever had, pull it all together and then make this work. Um, and um, we recently, a friend recently um, pointed out that, that we're, we have this little tiny team, um, but we're doing all these things at a really high professional level. And um, what's really needed is, is a racing mom. And so this guy started calling, and, and this happens in so many parts of my life where um, younger people will kind of hang out with me or whatever in, at this big event last December called Winter Jam, this group of you know kids started calling me mom and then um over the weekend i was talking with a colleague and he's like well you're drift moms <laughs> like i think and then he called me that and then the next day i ended up talking for a couple hours with one of the local drift girls and realized okay i think the drift mom thing is gonna kind of stick you know that that i tend to fall into this role of um being authoritative but helpful and try to pull everybody together <laughs> all this stuff so um but managing farouk has been really awesome so those are the various things i do <laughs> wow heather i'm i'm just sitting here thinking when i was 30 years younger that would have been me doing a whole bunch of different stuff at the same time but right. now that i'm 64 i don't want to do all that but you're right. obviously younger than i am and you've got lots of energy to manage all of that just to know what day it is and where you're supposed to be and what hat you have on is probably the first challenge of the day so i'm i'm pretty impressed with all that you do so let's talk a little bit first about the racing part what exactly when you say you manage the team what exactly does that entail um well you know you you mentioned reed um about making sure people have the right or i have the right hat on i swear that 62.4% of my job is making sure that everybody has the right hat on at the right time. So, you know, it, it's, it's managing all these things. I'm managing calendars. Um, I'm making sure that, that um, all the latest technical regulations that come out are being published within the team. Um, managing meetings of various sorts. I'm constantly looking for sponsors. Um, and then maintaining the partnerships that we currently have, um, which are all the most amazing business partnerships. Um, and um, making sure we're producing um, the right social media content, making sure we're pro we um, produce various um, technical movies for um, some of our partners. Um, so I have to just get everybody together and make sure everything is happening when it needs to happen. Um, and so it's um, it's, um, it's 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 a small amount of herding, a small amount of cats. Okay, all right. So, yeah. So not always easy, but doable. Well, I would say totally doable. Totally doable. Not always easy. Um, 
definitely there are, um, you know, challenges on a daily basis, but also I'm also working with the most awesome people too. So everybody, everybody we work with is passionate about what they do and everybody is a good team member. Like whenever there is a difficulty, we all make sure it all works, no matter whether it's within the team or with, with a partner or anywhere else, everybody, everybody has the same common goal. And so everybody is working constantly to push forward and just become better and better. Well, that's a good thing because not all teams work in the same direction. So it's important that that's, you know, that makes things easier really from the start. If everybody knows the goal and knows how to get there. So that's, that's pretty interesting. Now you talk about drifting. So you're going to have to explain a lot of that. Now, I mean, um, I've seen it on, on uh, the movies. Mm -hmm. And so I, that's about as much as I know about drifting. So I want you to tell us a little bit more about that and, and where do they race and how, you know, just explain it to us. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about my first introduction to drifting. Um, I was actually doing, um, this was 10 years ago now. Um, I was uh, chairing um, local um, Bay Area street survival schools. And one of my instructors was a drifter. And so he, after the end of the day, all the instructors could go out and use the courses to just have fun once the kids left. So he took me drifting and I, and everybody thinks that I was laughing. I must've been laughing, but I swear I was screaming at the top of my lungs. I thought he was going to kill me. I'm like, we're sliding towards this pole. And then the next time we went to the same location, he showed me the tire marks. I'm like, I think you're going to kill me. And he's shown me the tire marks and how far away from the pole they were. And he's like, I wasn't going to kill you. Look, we were 15 feet away. Um, but anyway, it's, it's a control. It's basically, it's a controlled slide that uses a lot of power. Um, and, um, it, and, and it's very dramatic. So um, I've recently come to learn that they call road racing. They call that grip grip racing <laughs> I'm like that's just racing like why do you have to call it grip <laughs> but um so it's it's a controlled slide um I am learning how to do this myself um it's um oh uh, and I'm gonna have this part about the movies um so basically um you the easiest thing to do you know, people who are into drifting are probably going to kill me for however I describe this, but basically you have a limited slip or a welded differential to help your rear wheels spin at the same speed instead of different speeds. Um, you, um, it's like you surprise the car into, um, <laughs> in, into a slide. You, um, like, um, I'm, I'm on the donut, on the right-handed, left-handed, and figure eight phase of learning how to drift. Um, but you basically, when you want to initiate a drift, you let up on the throttle um, and then immediately punch the throttle and in, in, um, do your steering input. And then the car just goes. <laughs> and it, it starts to go sideways and then you have to regulate the throttle and the steering so that you control where the car is sliding. Because um, otherwise you're just gonna spin out and maybe kill it or whatever. Um, and I can't even tell you how much it, how much fun it is. <laughs> it's, um, it's just a ball, you know, throwing a three thousand or more 
pound machine around. Um, and so the car I'm learning in is actually just, um, it's a BMW E46 with a welded diff and that's its only modification. And I'm actually still in first gear, which is sort of ridiculous, but um, it's fun. And anyway, um, Farouk brings us to a whole other level. Um, oh my gosh, there's so much to say about drifting. Okay, I still have to come back to the movie part. Um, so Farouk, he's at a whole other level. He's a pro one formula drift driver. So he's at the top level of drifting motorsports um, and they compete nationwide and it's streamed worldwide, which is really cool. Um, their season's gonna start in September this year because of the pandemic, um, but we're expecting it to be amazing with all the live streaming and stuff. So that's different because it's a competition based on style. So they have a lead follow. And so they, um, at the beginning of the day, judges will explain the course and explain what the drivers would have to do to make a perfect score. Then, they, then two drivers will, will make a run. One is the leader, one's the follower. Um, and then they make a run and then they switch. So the follower becomes the leader. And then um, they tr they're based on style. Um, the winner of each round is based on the style of what they're doing and so that's also completely opposite of what i'm doing in the low-powered streetcar because he's got a thousand horsepower to jay-z gte nissan s14 with a gigantic borg warner 9280 turbo in it and it and like these detour fuel injectors like or not no no sorry <laughs> i'm getting around fuel pumps um and these awesome um nuke fuel um, rails and all this stuff. It's like the, the fueling system is so intense and they run uh, E90 ethanol. Um, so it's this thousand horsepower monster of a machine. And the cool thing is I actually never saw drifting in the movies until recently. Um, we were t I was talking with a potential partner and he's like, oh, did you see Tokyo Drift? You have to see Tokyo Drift. And, and I hadn't and I thought that was really lame that I'd never seen Tokyo Drift. Um, and I'm into the drifting scene. And it was so funny because I'm like, really? <laughs> that, that's how this is portrayed in the movies? It's um, like, um, it was so vanilla. <laughs> like when, when you're actually at the track, like you cannot get the smell of the rubber in, out of your nose. It, it's like, you're really burning rubber. <laughs> <laughs> like by the end, your tread is gone from your tires. Um, there's so much wheel smoke. And then in the movies, I actually learned this because I'm learning, because in addition to everything else, I'm learning how to be a stunt driver. So I learned in the movies, they actually use WD-40 to make the wheel smoke. They're not even really trying to make the tire smoke. And I think that that really showed because I was watching Tokyo Drift. I'm like, this is super lame compared compared to actual drifting because there, there's just so much noise and so much power and then when you see the cars um, running together they call it tandem when they run together um, they just have um, it's 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 my husband describes it as it's like a dance and it really is and sometimes um, so the other thing Farouk does is he manages Sonoma Drift um, which is at Sonoma Raceway. It's um, more than 20 weekends a year. 
Um, and there's this event called Winter Jam in December that's 360 drivers, 4,000 spectators come out even in the rain. It's freezing. Well, not compared to most places in the country, but <laughs> California freezing. <laughs> um, and it's, um, it's just the, the noise and excitement and camaraderie um, and drift kids. And it's just um, such a great environment. And I don't think that that can be portrayed in media as it is in real life. It, it's um, a really, really visceral experience to be drifting or even just going to a drift event. So, so Sonoma must be the main maybe place where they do that, but mm -hmm. do, they, do they do this all over the United States? I think, um, I think, uh, <laughs> there's a certain crowd who will do it on the street um, when it's safe, but it's super illegal. Um, and I've, I think that, um, I think various tracks will have drift events. I don't know a lot about them though. Like I know um, last year Farouk went and um, announced up in Seattle at an event called DriftCon. Um, so that was up in Seattle. Then SEMA, they have um, Ignite at the end of SEMA where they have drifting um, after the vehicle parade of cars leaving the uh, showroom floor. Um, and, um, you know, actually, I don't know if it's as big around the country as it is here in California. Um, and, and then, oh yeah, okay, I'm sorry. I'm forgetting about things like there's, there's grid life, which is a series that runs around. So Formula Drift runs around, and then there's grid life and they have um, grip again, <laughs> grip events and drift events as part of the, and then music as part of their festival. So there are various series that travel around. Okay. And then, and then various series at local racetracks. Okay. Like I know down in Southern California, people will rent a racetrack and then they'll drift on it. So okay. It, yeah, it it's can be done on a skid pad. Like or a California thing to me <laughs> because I, you know, until I had talked to you or, researched a little mm -hmm. bit about it I didn't really see where that like I could go to anything very close to where I live in Michigan but mm -hmm. you know I'm going to be in Arizona in the winter so California is uh -huh. not that far away so, no um, it sounds like such a cool thing to witness I yeah. definitely have to find a place to go and watch and yeah. are there women that do this as well so um not enough <laughs> There are women who do it, um, and that's actually, um, you know, I, I think I mentioned when I first met you, one of the reasons I decided to join the International Women's Motorsports Association is because locally we have a lot of women participating in road racing, um, and that's where I, my background was originally from, um, and I didn't feel as though it was that, you know, quote unquote special to be a woman in uh, racing, but definitely now that I've become part of the drifting scene around here, not, not very many women are in it. And I'd say 3% um, women would be a generous figure. Um, I for sure participating. Um, and then um, every Wednesday when they're, it, Sonoma Drift has to reopen. We're, we're still closed right now due to, due to the pandemic. But once it opens, there are women who show up and they have, um, and then young families show up and it's really cool. But um, still, I would say that it's, um, they're more there in support of 
you know, in general, you know, we also have women photographers and, and women right. um, marshals and women volunteers and all that, but definitely um, there's a definite difference in the um, numbers of women, the percentages of women between road racing and drifting. And so I definitely want to advocate for more women to come out and check out the drifting scene and, um, and be part of the drifting scene because it, it's really cool. It's a good group of people. It's like anywhere else that you have a racing family. You know, it, it's um, definitely a grassroots racing family. And sometimes it seems sort of like a ragtag bunch of people, um, but also just super sweet, amazing people just full of heart, you know, just like you find in all the other types of racing. Right. So um, <clears throat> how would you say, like compared to other kinds of racing, do, are there more rollovers? Do they get, is it more dangerous or how, you know, how does that compare to like a regular kind of um, grip racing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now you can't unhear that term. Um, <laughs> um, I would definitely say it's in general safer um, from what I've seen. So I um, have been doing tech inspections for the last dozen or so years, again, starting off in road racing. Um, last year, becoming involved with tech for um, both drag racing and drifting, actually. Um, and uh, drag racing honestly scared me. I wasn't really fond of doing the tech inspections for that, especially for the purpose built dragsters they wow they're intense uh machines um but um i have yet to see a rollover in drifting um but i've um i'd see them constantly <laughs> when i'm working on for the road racing um not i mean that's kind of putting it maybe a little too dramatically maybe it's not constant but it's um yeah. Yeah, more, way more prevalent in, in road racing and track days than it is um, with drifting. Um, yeah, again, I haven't seen a rollover, but the cars that run tandem have to have a roll cage just in case. Um, and they also have um, an anti-intrusion door, door bars um, in case they hit each other or another object from the side. So they're, um, they have to have two door bars um, going um, forward from the main roll hoop. Um, and then, um, the, the interesting thing, like, um, is that to get the wheel speed, you have your car, your, your car's wheels, the rear wheels are turning fast, but the car itself is moving very slowly in comparison. So it's hard to say how fast the car is actually going, but I'll give you one example is that Farouk's car will go. I, I want to say it's 120, but just in case I'm wrong, 100 miles an hour. But the car's not itself moving 100 miles an hour. It's moving certainly very, very, very quickly, but but the wheels are going 100 miles an hour. Okay. So it's um so it's a a slower speed. But if things go wrong, those wheels are turning that speed. So <laughs> you have to be really, really careful. Right. Um, you know, things can can go horribly wrong. Um, but definitely, I would say in general, from everything I've seen to date, way safer drifting than road racing. Okay. Yeah. I'm just intrigued by it. I can't wait to figure out how to come <laughs> and, and watch this. So what's your favorite yeah. thing about being involved in motorsports in general? Oh, man. Um, you know, I, 
you know, there's, there's two sides of that. One is the people, um, because it's, there's a motorsports family and, um, you don't have to explain that to other people. You don't have to explain why you love it because you all love it. And <laughs> so there's, there's a camaraderie, um, and a brother and sisterhood that, that comes from the love of motorsports. Mm -hmm. Um, and then on the other side of it, um, I can't get a, enough of the sensory overload of, of racing. Um, it, it's the, the intense, um, sound like when you have to wear earphones wow you know the, that is so loud and and like if you don't wear them it's going to damage your hearing yeah in the long term but in the short term it actually hurts um but then there's the the smell of it like the the smell of the exhaust um definitely with drifting the smell of the rubber i've def it can be really overwhelming sometimes but it like it gets into you <laughs> and you start to love it. Um, and then also just when you're around these powerful cars and the vibrations travel into your body. Um, just, I love that feeling of just that vibrational energy or let's say you're walking behind a, a race car as it starts up and you can feel the exhaust hitting your leg. Like um, those it's, and then it's just also, it's hot and sticky and dirty and greasy and um, sweaty. And the, like, you can't not embody the experience of, of being at the races. And, and I just, I can't get enough of that. Um, and, and I'll get up, you know, at four in the morning time and again to go have those experiences. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, uh, you know, it basically racing gets in your blood. I mean, um, it's, yeah. you try to explain to people who haven't been to, you know, I do a lot of NASCAR stuff, so, or circle track. So mm -hmm. it's the same thing. Uh -huh. Try to explain to people the excitement, the sounds, the smells, and all of that. And they don't, I mean, they think they know, but they don't. Right. And, and especially um, when I was in Phoenix in March, um, a group of people did a tour of the of the pit area. Mm -hmm. and did the garage area and they were just like they had no idea like these the size of the tool ca tool cabinets and right. that there's a whole nother car in the hauler in case you wreck the one you're on and all these different things and there's so much to it that people don't understand or don't they don't know what they don't know and so those people that we took you know that went on that that tour. And then, um, I talked to them, actually one of the guys, Charlie Cutler Cutter is, um, was a fire is a fire person at Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And so his wife was doing the tour. So we interviewed him a little bit too, uh, about what he does and people don't think about it. They buy the tickets to the event mm -hmm. and they go sit in their seat and they mm -hmm. watch the race, but there's so much more to it. And that's the part mm -hmm. I love. I love yeah. sharing that with people and showing them the behind the scenes and what it really takes to put that car on the track for that race just for one day. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just, I love hearing the passion in your voice because I can tell that you would have no problem getting up at 4am to go <laughs> and neither would I. Right. Never. <laughs> you know, that I, I would, that I would do and not think twice. But if you wanted me to right. get up at 4am to, to do something else, I probably would tell you you're crazy. So yeah, that's, 
that's pretty normal. Yeah. So do you have any idea what, like um, the team that you help, do you have mm -hmm. any ballpark what a car costs or what it costs to do like one race event? Um, I, <laughs> I'm going to have a way better idea once I've been doing this for a full year and we've got through a full season with me. Um, but it's, um, it, it, it's torturous to think about um, because it, it's unfathomably expensive. <laughs> um, and it's, um, I've, I've averaged out with, with um, costs being where they should be. It's roughly $7,500 around if we aren't taking into consideration that people should get paid. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and that's like four people staying in one hotel room and yeah, this stuff. It's it's um very very expensive, and then um, you know it. And thankfully, we have so many great parts partners too, because we're not responsible for paying, you know, full price or or any price for a lot of the materials we we have, um, which is massively important to us, mm -hmm. um, because we really we we're such a tiny team, um, that we just couldn't afford it without them. So we really appreciate all their input, um, and thankfully. One of the things that's really cool is that Farouk is also a partner at a shop. And so it makes him, he actually uses these same products in the cars um, for the aftermarkets industry. And um, so there's a, there's a value that he has um, to the companies as well, because he's actually not just using the, car, the parts in the race car, but using them at the shop and then also helping develop those parts as well for some of the companies that they'll send us um, new materials and we'll test them in the car and, and see how it works and um, you know, legitimately have input into what becomes of products, um, which is also another really cool aspect of all of this that, that not everybody gets to do. Well, and that gives him so much more value to the sponsors. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then we produce the little movies and then we've got more. <laughs> so, wow. um, yeah. Do you really ever sleep or do you just like, con are you constantly thinking about when you're not teaching? Cause I know I want to ask you a little yeah. bit about that too, but uh -huh. um, do you ever, does your mind ever shut off or do you, you know? No, no, <laughs> no. Um, I, I kind of yeah. have the same problem. I have trouble yeah. sleeping. And so yeah. I have a lot of it's because I have a bad back and, uh -huh. and all that. But sometimes it's because I've read something or I've done something or talked to somebody and my mind is just twirling because yeah. I'm thinking of how we can partner and what we can do and how we yeah. can celebrate women. And yeah, and so uh, sometimes I need to figure out a way to just kind of shut that off. But that's really hard. Yeah, I haven't figured it out. <laughs> Um, I definitely, um, I have no problem at all getting to sleep, but staying asleep is another issue. Like the last two nights I've been up for three hours in the night, just, um, awake thinking. Um, I definitely have gone to, um, having my laptop ready in the other room because, um, I definitely have, have discovered that I need to get the thoughts out of my head in order to try to sleep. Um, and then I'll go off to another thought, of course, but, um, I'll, I will sometimes I'll get up and go type some notes on the laptop. Um, 
I won't send any email. I usually, usually, I, I usually don't send any emails in the wee hours, but I usually will start an email or make some notes or, uh -huh. or whatever um, in the, in the night. Um, that definitely has helped. And then um, I did start a routine in the morning because I'll tend to just, um, my alarm will go off, I'll wake up and I'll just start working um, just with this high level of intensity. And um, I did start a routine that's, that integrates, um, it's like a mind, body, vision integration exercise um, that I developed as a, a pre-race exercise, um, but it involves um, 10 minutes of um, meditation um, followed by some um, body and vision exercises and then a visualization at the end of that too. Um, and it sort of, helps me start my day in a broader, with a broader scope and a more calm scope. Although I, I think this might go in with the whole motorsports love thing. I think there's a certain amount of energy and drive that comes from people who are involved in motorsports also, where like maybe, maybe our baseline level is higher mm -hmm. um, than, than your average person um, that, maybe our, our calm is somebody else's 110%. <laughs> I'm, okay, I'm still so trying. that would be <laughs> I don't my know. husband is, is down uh -huh. and then I'm, I'm up there. Uh -huh. He's very laid back, yeah. doesn't get excited about much yeah. of anything and doesn't, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, do we really need to go right now? And that kind of thing where I'm like, ready yeah. to go. and so, yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah, we need to be there five minutes in advance at least, and that considers all the different traffic we might have to go through and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I'm tell me a little bit about your teaching um, uh -huh. uh, about your school and what you do. So tell tell us a little bit about that too. Sure. So um, I uh, teaching is my second career. I guess I would say racing is my third, and they're coinciding with one another. Um, um, I became a teacher after I really discovered that the bureaucratic lifestyle wasn't for me. Um, I worked um, for a time when I graduated college, at, I worked at UC Berkeley and worked in the biology labs and various things. Had one office job for one year and I just, I can't sit behind a desk. Um, and then just the, the politics involved with this hierarchical thing, just, I, I couldn't swing it. It just was not healthy, like just working for insurance and for retirement just um, seemed like I wasn't living a good life. Um, and so I became a teacher um, because an old boss told me I needed to be a teacher and, and she was right. I think I've, I've naturally, been, naturally been a teacher the whole time without ever having necessarily had realized it. Um, and I think that's how the, the drift mom thing kind of comes along too. Um, but I started exploring, you know, do I want to get a teaching credential? Um, and I got my child development permit and started teaching in a preschool um, that, and realized that if I got the traditional teaching credential, I was just going to fall into the same bureaucratic thing that I was escaping from. So I actually ended up um, being a preschool teacher for a really long time. Um, and, and a big part of that was, was parents telling me that I was doing what they needed me to do. Um, you know, one woman at the last day of school, I was so overwhelmed that first year. I swear I was sick 10 out of the 12 months. Um, 
and we had 22 kids in the classroom with it was 22 three and a half year olds with two teachers and one and one of the, the other teacher was part-time <laughs> it was insane trying I'm like I, I couldn't I felt horrible I'm like I should be able to tell parents at the end of the day what their kid did <laughs> and I can't I have no idea I have no idea what their kid did that day and, <laughs> and you know it was just so overwhelming um and 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 I and I really didn't like it <laughs> um but these parents would say you know I, I you know my family had a really rough time this year and you know I was going to school my mom died you know all this stuff and and they said you know but we would bring our kids here to you and you helped us through all that and we knew you were a solid foundation for our kids and you know and I had no idea that I was having this impact on families so I decided to stay um fast forward a couple of years I was really tired of um cutting apples and putting down nap mats. <laughs> My brain is way too active for that. Um, and the school opened uh, a property on the next block um, that became a school garden. And I became the school's garden teacher. I became much more happy. Um, the kids, you know, it, it definitely was a quieter environment because we're outside with kids. If there are 22 kids in a class, um, they were spread out and there weren't any walls and um, definitely a better environment for everybody. Um, and some of the teachers at first didn't really like it. And then um, like they would find ways to not be there on their classes garden day. Like, oh, but I brought this giant loaf of bread today. Like, well, could you have not brought that on your garden day? Like, why did you have to stay inside for the giant loaf of bread? Like, why not 12 of you carry it down the road and come enjoy it in the garden? You know, there, it was, there was definitely this undercutting thing to it. And then later on, um, it was actually after one of our, our coworkers died, um, the teachers who were averse to the garden at first realized the restorative powers of, of being there, um, which was really cool. Um, then um, that job went to part-time, <laughs> so I, I needed more money. So I actually developed outside school. Um, I started teaching at various um, public schools in their after-school programs. Um, but that also was crazy because um, then I was teaching 200 kids a week um, at four different school sites. Um, and that also was like, you know, there'd be some kid I'd, I'd love like this. I'd have this relationship with this kid, but I'd be like, hey, kid in the purple jacket, because I just couldn't remember their names at that point. Um, and then uh, that just, that didn't work for me either. It was just, I was killing myself, you know, <laughs> carrying, I had this little red wagon with school supplies and it was awesome. And, and I documented everything I did. Um, then I had the opportunity to teach in a forest school, which is um, open, um, no fences in a park, which was pretty amazing. Um, but again, um, I think ultimately um, I just needed to be my own boss. And so I turned outside school, which had been the after school program into my own program, which is 100% outdoors, um, no matter the weather year round um, in Richmond, California, um, a mile from my house. Nice. Yeah. So is it for just a certain age group or do you have all ages? I have all ages actually. Um, nobody, I, I have yet to actually have any teenagers, but I'm open for kindergarten through 12th grade. Okay. 
Yeah. And so just quickly, what are some of the things that you teach them in this school? Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to tell you a very strange answer. I don't know. <laughs> and that's because um, I gave up on having a planned curriculum. Um, the kids are always way smarter than I am. Um, and they, uh, they lead the way. So my job is to facilitate their learning. So natural history is my thing. Science, I love. Animals, I love. Plants, I'm learning. Rocks, I'm learning. Um, but but nat the, the environment, natural history is, is my, my love. This, this li life's work, that's part of the passion of my life is, is science geekery um, also. So um, I'll just give you an example from last year where, um, Am I going on too long, by the way? No, no, I'm interested. <laughs> okay, because I, so this last summer was one of my favorite teaching days I ever had. And, and um, let's just say, for example, I was going to, I, that I thought today, oh, hey kids, I brought, I brought a log and we're gonna have a fire in the fire pit today. Um, and then we would have had the log in the fire pit and that would have been our planned curriculum for the day. Um, and it would have been awesome, right? Starting fires is, is awesome. But um, I gave up on those ideas. Instead, I have fire starting things in my car just in case it shows up. Um, but instead on this day, right off the bat, this kid's like, Heather, I found a dead lizard. And he has this dead lizard in his hand. And I'm like, wow, look at that. <laughs> um, so, um, it, it, so we, the, that was right at the beginning of the day. So all the parents saw the dead lizard, all the, all the families saw the kid handling the dead lizard. Um, and I'm like, okay, well, let's definitely, I mean, not like we would skip it anyway, but definitely let's make sure to wash hands before snack. So, and the mom, you know, she, she's been with me several summers now. Um, she looks at me, she's like, it's okay. <laughs> I'm not worried about it. I'm like, okay, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so, um, so we all hiked off to our picnic spot, um, decided to, you know, it's snack time. So let's, uh, we d stuck the lizard in the um, barbecue pit just for safekeeping while we had snacks. So we all went and washed our hands, came back and ate snack. And um, snack time is when we decide, what are we gonna do for the day? Um, and so of course, of course the kids know that I have a dissecting kit in the trunk of my car. So the next order of business is going to my car, getting the dissecting kit. Um, and then we had to talk about what are, what are we gonna do and when? And so we all decided, so here I am, these, this is the kids, you know, the kids knew I had the dissecting kit. I wanna get the dissecting kit, but they told me they wanted to get the dissecting kit. So they're making the decisions. I'm there to facilitate their decision-making and I'm there to help guide some of the decisions. I'm not the one making decisions for them. We do that together. Um, so got the, got the dissecting kit, um, talked about what should the ultimate goal of, with this lizard be, and we decided to take it back to where we found it to dissect it, um, because possibly a bird had dropped it after it got killed or died. I don't know if it got killed or died. Um, or there's also a coyote we were seeing every morning and the coyote would come right past us on the path um, and walk down the hill past the picnic table we would gather at and go down to the creek and then follow the creek. And then later on you could hear her in the neighborhood as neighborhood dogs would get upset 
that the coyote's walking past. So we thought, well, maybe the coyote had killed the lizard and dropped it when people started arriving at the park. We didn't know. So um, we decided to head back, um, got the dissecting kit out, um, went through all the lizard's external features, comparing them to our external features. Um, also, in college, I took herpetology, which is the study of reptiles and amphibians. So um, that just tied in with my particular animal love is reptiles and amphibians. So we're tying my particular love in with this. Um, and um, then the kids all wanted to see its heart. They were so excited. And so um, started the dissection. Um, discovered immediately that it had been pregnant um, and it was going to have, um, it would have had six babies. Um, and then that brought in this whole dis ovoviviparity, parity, which means lizards lay eggs, they're oviparous, but in this case, it's a lizard that retains the eggs within her body and doesn't form shells. So it's ovoviviparous, ovoviviparous, which means it gives a live birth. Um, so we were able, and then I got to talk about how the uterus in many animals that have multiple babies has, it's bifurcated. So there were two embryos in one side of the uterus and four in the other side. Um, and then, then we got to the heart and this is a tiny little thing. So we, you know, cut the rib cage, saw the heart and immediately the kids were so excited about, who were so excited about the heart were done with the dissection because they, were, they just wanted to see the heart. So those kids actually went off and created an altar for the dead lizard. Oh. And it was amazing. They're like, and I'll get to that. But um, uh, so the other kids stayed with me and finished the dissection. And then um, at the end, oh, and then we dissected one of the embryos because they're in this neat little um, amniotic sac. Um, and so we dissected one of those and then furled its tail and it had the big eyes and the, the spine you can clearly see. It was, it was really amazing. Um, but then when we were done, the kids who had made the altar came over. Um, they, they found a, an indentation in a log and then found a piece of bark that would fit perfectly within that indentation um, and brought that over for the lizard and said, this is this is for the royal lizard and <laughs> put the lizard on this piece of bark and carried it over. And then they each brought over um, an oak leaf for each embryo. And I said, the royal oak leaf for the royal embryo. <laughs> and so created this, this altar. Um, and that, you know, this whole process was almost the entire day. You know, it, it was from beginning of the day to the end. Um, and so, um, by the end of the day, ants were coming and eating the embryos. Um, oh, actually, that was another cool thing about it, too, is before I dissected it, I, we had to go through what are the definitive signs of death, because I told them I didn't want to get into the lizard if it wasn't dead. <laughs> so, you know, we went through and, and looked for the definitive signs of death. <laughs> um, it had already passed through rigor mortis and it was, again, floppy, but it made me a little nervous. <laughs> but it, indeed, it was dead, and we did um, end up toward the end of the dissection, got a little bit of the smell of decomposition. But it was really cool to actually get to talk about that. Um, but by the end of the day, ants were coming and eating the embryos, and they were realizing that the ants' bellies became full from the dead embryos. Um, so there was no sorrow in that. You know, they could see the beauty of 
of this feeding other things. And then in the, ne the next morning, everything was gone completely. You know, did a bird get it? Did the coyote come back? Who knows? You know, we, we, we don't know where it went, but it was, it was gone. And so it, it became uh, part of the thing where then like the smallest girl in school, Heather, I hope we find a dead horse, you know? <laughs> so. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm sitting here listening to you and and I'm just um what was going through my head was that those kids on that day mm -hmm. learned so many things that they would never learn in a traditional school setting. Exactly. Uh, and and you know the fact that those kids made the altar and they want to see the I mean all of it. I know we're supposed to be talking about motorsports but you know what? <laughs> um it all it all goes it all kind of, you know, hooks together in the fact that they were all kind of working together. They were learning together. They were, some had this idea. Some were interested in building the altar. Some people are interested in doing the marketing. If you're on a race team, you know, right, exactly. had a different interest about that little poor dead lizard. That right. lizard. And I, yeah. and I can just see how it ties into the same thing when you're working in any industry whether mm -hmm. it's motorsports or something else everybody kind of has their thing that they really get excited about mm -hmm. and and even though they're all sitting there together they're all being part of that classroom um yet they each have their individual you know talents and mm -hmm. interests and wow i just that's a great story i i love that my one of my daughters was a teacher mm -hmm. and and always wanted to be a teacher from the time she was little. And back in the days when she was in school in the 90s, um, early 90s or late 80s as well, she, um, school was different. Teaching was different. Nowadays, it's all about the scores and the funding and the this and the that. And she's like, this is not what I became a teacher for. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, she knew that that what she thought was her passion really ended up not being her passion. So she's moved mm -hmm. on to doing other things. But I, I love that you are so passionate. I heard it in your voice about the motorsports team, the drifting team. And I hear the same passion in the teaching. And mm -hmm. you're fortunate that you have things that you're doing in your life that you're passionate about because so many mm -hmm. of us, in the past or maybe now go to work or do what we do on a daily basis and it's mm -hmm. not fulfilling and it's not our passion and and then we go home and we wonder what's missing in our life right and, uh, i don't feel like you probably ask yourself that because i think you <laughs> things that make you you know make you happy um right. same thing with me my family makes me happy spending time with mm -hmm. them, my grandchildren. I've got 13 and a third <laughs> grandchildren. I'm going to have a wow. grandson in uh, <laughs> October. And, uh, you know, I'm old enough now. I want to retire. I want to um, go to Arizona for part of the year where, where mm -hmm. two of my daughters live and my, some of my grandchildren. I want to be in Michigan in the summer to watch my other two older granddaughters race cars and mm -hmm. travel with my husband and our camper. And you have to find those things, don't you, Heather? The things that make you smile and make you happy. 
for sure. I definitely realized that there, there's only so much life to live. And um, I needed, you know, decided that if I wasn't happy with something, I needed to change it um, and become happier. Um, and definitely, I'm, I, I don't feel like, I don't feel like I'm lacking for anything at this point. And I definitely, I totally have to give out the biggest shout out to my husband because I couldn't do any of this without him. You know, his support for, for me to go off and own my own school. Um, and then for his helping me with motorsports, you know, like, you know, he makes sure one, you know, I, he makes sure I get to the track safe and sound and come home safe and sound. I definitely make sure I call him when I get there and call him before I leave. But you know, he's, he's my pit crew. You know, I have dinner waiting for me on the table when I come home for, at the end of the day. And um, also to be able to have a relationship that is so good that he understands that I have these passions and, and needs in my life, um, which not everybody has that. And I definitely, I, I feel fortunate on a daily basis. You know, I, I've, we have, San Francisco is, is located, you know, 10 miles that way. I can see it and um, people, and I can hear the freeway right past my house. Um, you know, right now with the pandemic, it's less busy, but from 4.30 in the morning, it's uh, till 8.30 at night, traffic. Um, people stuck in traffic. It was for a while when I was working in Berkeley, five, I was working five and a half miles from here and it took me, it was taking me 45 minutes in each direction. Um, and it's just like, this is, this is not a sustainable lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I, I have the park that's a mile away now. And then it's just to be able to work at, I, I can't even tell you how much I love working at Sonoma Raceway. And that's where Farouk's shop is at Sonoma Raceway too. So it's amazing to wake up in the morning. Yeah, I'll have to go through some traffic, but then there, after that, there's marshlands and sunrise and birds and the reflection of the, the sky on the water and these beautiful hills and, and then the constant sound of, of cars on the race course, whether I'm working for the race course that day or working up at Farouk's shop, it's this constant input of, um, of, um, sensory input and emotional input and physical input and mental input. It's this constant um, high level <laughs> of input that I need um, that, that keeps me just really, really happy and, and in love with, with life. Right. So yeah, I, I definitely, I don't take any of this for granted. Yeah, exactly. You know, my husband, you know, he's, he enjoys going to the races, but he doesn't want to be there from 10 a.m. till 8 p.m. or whatever the mm -hmm. hours might be yeah. doing the things that I do. But he'll come, you know, when it's time to watch. Right. And one of his favorite sayings is, you know, I don't have to live in your pocket. So in other <laughs> words, we can each do the things we love and then we come together and enjoy a lot of the same things. So, um, Heather, I've just enjoyed talking to you so much and hearing about your motorsports and about your school and the things that you do. And it's, it's just been such an enjoyable conversation. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure that you share on the podcast? Um, I'll definitely think of something uh, by tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it's too late. Um, I, I definitely feel like um, I definitely feel like we talked about all the um, 
awesome things and more that I hoped we would talk about. Um, and I, I guess, actually, here, here's the thing. Um, I think just being female in, in what still remains a male-dominated sport, um, you know, don't let that be daunting towards you. Um, find your mentors because there are mentors um, everywhere. And if someone's not helping you, then move past them. Um, and then um, also don't like like you, Melinda. Um, you know, I'll I'll be fifty in um, September, so um, I think that's partially. You know, I'm not an actual mom, but I think that's how the, the mom thing came about because I am old enough to be some of these people's um, mom. Um, and so don't let your age um, deter you either. You know, I'm I'm out there. You know, I've become a team manager in this last year. I've um, been learning how to drift in this last year. Um, and yeah, these are things that can cause some fears, but I think that if you're fearful, move past them. If you think, you know, gender, race, age, all those things, just please don't let any of those things stop you. If that's, if you want to try to achieve something and the first step is the hardest, you have to make the first step though, mm -hmm. or you're not going to go anywhere. That's, so, that's, I guess that's good advice that. and so true. And not just for women, but for anyone, yeah. but especially for women, because we tend to want to take care of other people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we need to put ourselves first and, and do for us. And so yeah. I always try to encourage women to live their dreams and go, go for it, you know? So, well, Heather, thank you so much for giving me an hour of your day. I know you're busy and um, I just, I just love talking to you and it's been such a pleasure to meet you. And, and visit with you. And so we need to make sure we stay connected. We will. I really appreciate what you're doing, Melinda. I just, I feel your heart coming through everything that you do. And so thank you for finding me. Um, and I really appreciate it. It was, it was really great chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Racing Girls Rock Podcast. Follow us on Facebook at International Women's Motorsports Association or on Instagram and Twitter at the IWMA Nation. And if you know someone that should be on our show, drop us an email at IWMA Nation at gmail.com.